Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined, as always, by Harvey Young of Northwestern University. Harvey, how are you doing? Did I see that you just got back from a really interesting symposium in Toronto? Absolutely. I was in Toronto for a few days participating in Post Marginal, uh, which is or was uh, a symposium organized by Rick Knowles and Natalie Alvarez looking at interculturalism and cultural difference in theater. And was that hosted by University of Toronto? No, it was hosted by Modern Time Stage uh, Company uh, in Toronto, which is a professional uh, theater company in the heart of the city. So it was fantastic. That's very cool. It looked very cool on on Facebook, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Um, And we are joined also by Sarah Beijung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, let me just be the first to say thank you so much for the super cool on tap mug that I got in the mail. You are very welcome. And oh yeah, no, you're very welcome. And congratulations to panel who recently completed his first marathon. Ah, yes, I so, did. Well, well done. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Not a, not an easy achievement. No, it was uh, it was no easy day. And I, <laughs> I, I joined an exclusive club of uh, marathoners in the field, including Henry Bile, who I know has completed at least a couple of those. And and you, Sarah, am I right? You've you've completed marathons, right? I've done. A, I've done a few. I've done yeah, a few. Yeah. And I've watched. I, it. I'm happy not to be doing them right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I have to do a quick, quick uh, sports shout out. So among our ranks of, of theater academic marathoners is Heather May, uh, oh. who I believe is at uh, William Hobart Smith. And she, if I'm not mistaken, uh, is a sub three hour marathoner, which wow. I am not. And I don't think Harvey is either. Uh, and I believe that she, one year she qualified for the Olympic trials. Yeah. Um, uh, so she's that's, kind of amazing. That's amazing. We'll have to, well, maybe we'll have to feature her. We should in do segment sports sometime. in theater academia, right? Listen. Like the, the, great, the great untold sports stories of, of our field. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are going to run out of segments eventually, and we can get into that stuff. Um, so today on the podcast, we have some really exciting segments to share with you. Um, we are going to talk about Lisa Freeman's new book, Anti Theatricality and the Body Public, which takes a fresh look at the uh, intellectual tradition of anti-theatricality in Anglo-American history. We are going to talk about MOOCs, massive open online courses, and the field of theater and performance studies. Are they here to stay? What are the pluses and minuses? And how do those um, uh, online teaching adventures uh, work in theater and performance studies. And finally, we are very excited to welcome uh, Micah Blaker of the University of Utrecht to guest on the podcast during our third segment to talk to us about theater and performance studies in Europe. Before we get to those topics, we have the news roundup. The news roundup in past episodes I feel like has been a little bit thin, but we have got a great news roundup this episode. Aster working sessions have been announced, and the deadline is June 1st. Uh, The theme is Extraordinary Bodies. It will be in Atlanta, Georgia, November 16th through 19th, so check those working sessions out. 
Also, Guggenheim fellowships were announced, and there were several people of interest to people in the field who were recipients of those fellowships. Stacey Wolf of Princeton University received a fellowship for her project Beyond Broadway, Four Seasons of Amateur Musical Theater in the U.S., which focuses attention on the importance of amateur productions in sustaining American musical theater. And Martin Puchner of Harvard University also received a Guggenheim. He is finishing a new book called The Written World, which is a wide-ranging history of literature. Also in that Guggenheim list, there were several theater artists and playwrights, Marianne Weems of the Builders Association, Carmelita Tropicana, uh, Rogelio Martinez, uh, Carson Kreitzer and Aaron Landsman, um, all theater and performance people who received Guggenheims. So congratulations to Stacy and to Martin and to um, all of those artists as well. Exciting list. Yeah, it was a very good year um, in Guggenheims for, for our field and for theater in general. Um, there are new podcasts popping up uh, also in the field. Jen Harvey, professor of contemporary theater at Queen Mary University in London, has a new podcast called Stage Left, which features her conversations with artists. Uh, check that out. And I think that Charlotte Canning is also working on something at UT. There are pictures of her in a recording booth that have been floating around Facebook Um And I think that she is working on uh, some sort of theater history podcast, which we're excited to see. Finally, we can announce that Elisa Morrison has accepted a tenure-track appointment at Yale University, and she's going to start there in the fall. Um, Elisa is at Texas A&M currently, and she is going back to Yale, where she was a postdoc for a few years. So congratulations to Elisa on that exciting new job. Woohoo! Woohoo! Do you guys have anything you want to add? No, that was an excellent news roundup panel. I agree. Very, very full. Very exciting. Um, well, with that, why don't we move on to our first topic? We read Lisa Freeman's impressive, substantial new book, Anti-Theatricality and the Body Public. Uh, Harvey, do you want to lead us off by giving us basically a summary of what the book is and lead us in any direction you want? Yeah, absolutely. So we looked at uh, Lisa Freeman's uh, Anti-Theatricality and the Body Public, uh, which was recently published by... University of Pennsylvania Press. University of Pennsylvania yeah. Press. Uh, and it's a terrific book. Uh, Lisa, uh, for those of you who uh, may or may not know, is an associate professor of English at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I believe she is full professor now, actually. Full professor. My yep. bad. That means the book bio is wrong <laughs> you know, for this new book. And uh, she is also the author of Characters Theater, uh, Genre and Identity on the 18th Century English Stage. Uh, what is fascinating about this book is what Lisa Freeman does is uh, she situates us, the reader, in various historical moments beginning in the mid-1600s uh, and then uh, going through to the early 1800s and kind of fast-forwarding to the NEA crisis of culture, you know, and NEA loss of funding, the NEA4, Finley, Hughes, uh, Miller, and others. And she reveals uh, to us how sort of theater itself has always been contested and been uh, an object of debate and concern, um, but also of possibility uh, within these historical moments. And she uses the phrase, the body public, to situate a competing interest across these historical moments, right? So it's not a single public sphere, but it's competing factions uh, across time. Uh, and it's a rich, uh, historically uh, involved, archivally um, sophisticated in terms of his exploration study. So let's talk about this book. Panel, what 
I, I see that you've been thanked actually in the acknowledgments of this book. <laughs> what are your thoughts on it? Oh, yes, I was I was flattered to be included in that acknowledgement. I have a lot of thoughts. I, I feel like the book is a really substantial contribution to the field. I think it belongs next to uh, Jonas Barish's The Anti-Theatrical Prejudice, which is one of those texts that all of us know and really appreciate. And so it's it's really fascinating what Lisa does here, because whereas Barish's book is intellectual history and you know examines a series of texts in which theater is uh, condemned and decried for various reasons and, and lifts out the themes in those reasons, what Lisa does is examine these five case studies and gives a kind of multifaceted uh, historicist evaluation of the publishing events or the theater fires or the political controversies that gave rise to these condemnations of theater. But she shows in every case how these debates are really tied into sociopolitical movements and um, crises, as, as Harvey said. So it, it's extremely impressive in terms of the very deep dives that Lisa does on all of these topics. Um, and so she ends up proving in every case that there's much more at stake than just the sort of ostensibly ideological prejudice against theater, that, that much more is going on. So I, I, I think it's a really a terrific contribution to the field. And, you know, there, there are exciting things things in it that I'll point out. She finds a new manuscript account of the Star Chamber trial of William Prynne after the, the publication of his Histriomastix, this gigantic anti-theatrical screed. And so she, that first chapter on its own, you know, sort of occasions a complete reevaluation of the significance of that event on the basis of that archival find. And in, you know, the other chapters, she sort of picks often political and religious contexts to plumb. And so one of the questions that it raised for me is whether these analyses are, you know, specifically linked to anti-theatrical ideas. There's definitely an answer to that question in Lisa, Lisa Freeman's book, but I wondered also how, you know, any sort of theatrical event you could do a similar kind of analysis and tease out how it's doing political work, how it's doing religious work, how there's sort of ideology within it. But it made me wonder to what extent specifically anti-theatrical episodes are um, appropriate for this type of historicist intervention and to what extent any large, you know, in any large cultural event would also unpack the same sorts of affiliations. Right. That makes sense. I don't know. I, I, I felt like one of the things that, that Freeman does in the book is demonstrate just how critical theatrical events are to the kinds of political and cultural projects that get attached to them, both in defense of theater and as an attack on theater. <clears throat> and one of the things that I felt the book does really powerfully is demonstrate just how necessary theater and, and the theatrical event is to these formations of, of political publics over time for both sides. Um, and I think she does this in a really powerful way in terms of uh, particularly in the, I think it's chapter three, where she talks about uh, Witherspoon uh, and the controversy in, in Scotland and then how he, those positions against theater he then brought with him to become, you know, when he became president uh, of what was then the College of New Jersey and is now Princeton University. Uh, 
and and how that then sort of seeded uh, a whole formation of of religious antagonism to theatrical events, but but uh, but it did but it didn't have to be that right like in some ways like theater became a really useful foil for religious conservatives and I think one of the things that that Freeman demonstrates is is that repetition historically in different locations over time and it it suggests the way in which theater has been and probably always will be a really a, a critical bete noir like you can't actually kill it off completely because then you have nothing you you, you lack it as a worthy adversary and just how essential the notion of theatricality which I thought I felt like really builds on on uh you know Bruch's tone but also on Martin Puchner's notion of theatricality uh, anti-theatricality as a value or right, a platonic value that endures uh, and so I found this to be like the next time people tell you why is theater important or why is theater essential you could just say because it is the it is it is the most it is the most necessary political punching bag that no one will give up on either side Absolutely. You know, b because there was also a way in which the theater, as much as it serves as this a foil, this sort of antagonist, you know, within a political debate, it also, uh, in certain instances, uh, enables the maintenance of a regime, right? You know, so theater is is played by both sides, you know, of if, if you think of this as sort of a binarial uh, sense of opposition, you know, where there's differing and competing publics, you know, so I think that that's something that she demonstrates across all these chapters. What are your thoughts in terms of uh, when the book makes the move from the early 19th century to uh, the late 20th century? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good question. That chapter, the NEA chapter, in a way, is its own part of the book. And in the introduction, Lisa makes a gesture towards the difference between the first four chapters and the last one. So she says that in the, the sort of early modern chapters, if you include the um, uh, chapter about the Richmond Theater Fire of 1811, that in each of these cases, the theater is a site for the contestation of the dispersion of sovereignty from, um, you know, models of absolute monarchy, models of um, religious absolutism to, you know, more modern forms of political constituency and um, public opinion models, sort of post-enlightenment formations. But, you know, her analysis of the NEA4 decision and Sandra Day O'Connor's decision, she says, shows that there's a kind of recuperation of these formerly dispersed powers. So in a way, you know, she lines up these five case studies, but finds that the final one, the one that's, you know, quite modern or contemporary, shows a reversion back to the kind of model of the patron, right? The, the, the NEA funding could be um, dismissed or, or, or withdrawn from these artists because the government is acting as the patron and not the sovereign. Um, so that's interesting. You know, w one final thing I'll say is that in the, the question of how theater as a medium-specific phenomenon operates in the, with these discourses is a, is a sort of thematic concern of the book, and Freeman coins these critical concepts to help elaborate what's going on in each of the case studies. So there's, for example, in chapter two about Jeremy Collier, um, the, the notion of uh, suppositiousness, so that because theater creates this sort of uh, invisible threshold between the real and the hypothetical, that's why it's a concern there. And 
for the NEA chapter, she talks about how these performance artists created a kind of hyper real real, which I think is another you know concept that she generates to try to unpack what is medium specific about these performances. So in that way, I think she she shows a lot of continuity between this recent case of you know quote unquote anti theatrical bias or uh, condemnation heaped on performance and earlier models. And in every case, there's a kind of specificity to what's happening in theater as a spatial and physical phenomenon, and as opposed to just another mode of literature that um, ties it into the the political and social discourses. So I thought that was a really great accomplishment there. But I want to know what you guys think about the NEA chapter and how it sort of stands apart. For me, the NEA chapter was uh, really, I mean, it worked, it was very effective within the context of the book, because I think the whole apparatus and infrastructure, critical infrastructure that, that Freeman builds in the preceding chapters allows you to look at just what was so radical about O'Connor's decision and her rhetoric in that in that decision, which I think in the broad swaths of that of that of that decision and our understanding of it, which Freeman also points out that the fact that some of the artists were compensated, you know, in an out of court summit settlement in in 1993, that the the court proceedings took so long that a lot of the energy from that had initiated with the original decision to withdraw funding, those kind of culture wars had dissipated into other areas by the time the final decision came came um, around. And and so she she points out that there hasn't been a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of scholarly attention to the actual court decision and its and it and its impact and its and it's what she calls the cultural logic uh, of that decision. And viewing that within these other uh, debates and her close reading of court transcripts historically, I think for me, gave me a totally new perspective on how to understand the NEA decision and, and what it points to. And precisely, I think the thing that carries through the book is is the whole question of who constitutes the public and how. And she frequently comes back to this notion of, of the we the public, we the people, right, our cultural values, our nation, and points out the ways in which that is a, is a mobile target throughout, throughout history, but in the, in the context of the NEA becomes an incredibly powerful rhetoric that is deployed specifically against gay people, right, gay and lesbian and queer identified people or work that is identified as queer. And and so for me, one of those key concepts that she coins that I found the most essential, and it's a it's a note on which she end is is what she calls the normative real, and it's that normative real that gets articulated and realized and manifested not only in aesthetic theaters of of dramatic literature, but also in the performative theaters of courtroom dramas and and her reading of transcripts as a kind of theatrical artifact of how these political, economic, social and and then normative sexual publics get construed. And so for example, on page 284, she points out that um, that the you know one of the attorneys arguing uh, the cases before the Supreme Court uh, uh, on behalf of the NEA4, David Cole, at one point, to, to her reading, and I'm co- totally convinced by this, uh, concedes one of the essential points of, of the opposite side, which is that um, 
that it is it is sometimes acceptable to discriminate against gays and lesbians in the United States and that they are not protected from discrimination. And so he he basically and so for for, you know, I mean, it's it's a it's a lengthy book. It's a dense book. It's also I just have to say a beautifully written book, but that it comes really to a head uh, in these last you know, 10 pages or so about the real implications of just how theater as a queer art and queer performance as the manifestation of the ultimate anti-theatricality is really a culmination of so many political and, and, and social and religious forces, particularly in the United States, that I, I felt like the preceding chapters build the critical conceptual framework to to understand this event in a, in in a in a new way at least to me and I I I am greatly appreciative for that for that argument. Yeah. One of the things she's able to do that's so impressive is to argue across these different types of discourse and in the NEA chapter, she comes back to reading legal opinions and transcripts of legal proceedings, which was a big part of the first chapter on um, histriomastics. And so there's a nice sort of return in that as well. And what's nice about it uh, in this, this last chapter, it's the idea that, you know, for the preceding four chapters, we as readers, you know, who are generally familiar with some of the text, but not all the archives and all the sources that she's using, um, we, we, we find ourselves needing to trust the author, right? Um, and to uh, find value in the um, the argumentation that's, that she's being put forward, right? So she talks about the Houghton Library discovery uh, that allows her to uh, rethink um, and reframe anti-theatricality, right, in the 17th century. Um, you know, we, we sort of go along with that because we don't have access to that material, right? Uh, but we are generally familiar with the NEA for controversy. So when she not only uh, engages uh, that sort of common history, but also provides, uh, as both uh, panel and Sarah have noted, this this wonderful correction, right? Uh, that says, you know, here's how the field has thought about the NEA for, right? But when we look at the role of the government as patron, right? What does that mean? When we look at the um, the, the series of these. Um, uh, amicus briefs, right? That you know, you know that, that that then sort of create a larger constituency uh, to engage notions of, of of how the government sort of polices identity. Uh, you know, that allows us to really appreciate every level of intervention that Lisa Freeman's making across her book, and I think that that is really rich. Uh, so there's a way in which, yes, it makes this huge historical jump, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, but she's consistent in tone. She's consistent in bringing attention to spotlighting the body publics. Um, uh, you know, allowing us to reframe our sense of the public sphere, uh, and and allows us to also sort of see how the world we live in today isn't all that separate from um, uh, the world of, of you know sort of theater makers and arts practitioners of the past. There's much to talk about, but why don't we leave that there and move on to our next topic? We wanted to talk about MOOCs, massive open online courses. Are they here? What do we know about people in the field teaching these? And what do we think about the appropriateness of MOOCs and theater and performance education? Sarah, do you want to start us off by uh, giving us a little bit of context and, and telling us what we ought to know about this topic? Sure. So the um, I, I think at this point, someone, uh, most people have kind of come across some reference to MOOCs, whether it's a you know, a, a threat leveled against individuals uh, in departments or uh, a, you know, utopian 
future uh, offering of you know how the world will be transformed magically through them. Um, certainly, both both lines of discourse have a fairly rich body of literature that one can refer to. Our discussion is prompted uh, by uh, a couple of recent posts by Charlotte Canning at University of Texas Austin, and Charlotte has been involved, and you can look for her her. Uh, she's a, a blog uh, with a couple of posts kind of laying out some of the thinking for uh, that she calls uh, online on stage. And what UT Austin is is doing is they're taking their large uh, kind of intro survey class, which is, as I understand it, you know, a couple hundred students, uh, maybe slightly smaller than that, but a fairly you know large lecture course. And turning that into what they are calling a, an SMOC, a synchronous, uh, let me just make sure I have the correct, uh, a synchronous massive online course, or uh, SMOC, or I guess maybe they would pronounce it SMOC. I would. Smoke, right? Uh, smoke, <laughs> smoke has better swag paraphernalia, like, you know, uh, we're smoking, you know. Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, and, and the way that Charlotte presents this on the, on, the, on the blog is to really think about, okay, so, you know, what are the advantages of these, of these online, uh, what are the advantages of an online platform for these large, large lecture courses? And one of the things that she argues is the kind of parallel between the large lecture course and uh, and large scale theatrical events, right? Um, and how how does one how might one use digital technologies in a kind of right synchronous, right? So a simultaneously live and online platform to facilitate more engagement with these with these lecture courses. And this, it seems to me, is a new question and a new direction for us to think about the the MOOC in the context of theater and performance studies. So one of the one of the questions that this brings up for me is um, and kind of dovetails with other discussions that are happening in the Chronicle of Higher Education and, and other places about what is the value of the large lecture course and might this be a situation and a context in which a kind of parallel digital engagement could be used really effectively. Uh, I certainly have have some ideas about that for and against, but I'm curious how you know what's what's the what's your guys's reaction to this? It's a, it's a good question. My sense is that if it's parallel, um, then sort of an online engagement, bringing in uh, additional users who are variously located, uh, can be a plus, right? The question then becomes what happens when it replaces the when it's not parallel, like what, you know, what happens when it's an, an online course uh, and then it has the promise of reaching more and more people and then it uh, and, and it asserts a sort of democratizing um, uh, aspect, right, or energy that, you know, anyone can again access these classes. Uh, but then as we've gone through a series of articles and look to find that, you know, often it's those with privilege who will kind of opt into these classes as opposed to, um, you know, those who are, sort of socioeconomically disadvantaged, you know, really being able to leverage and make use of, of, a, of an online course. So that's my sense is that there's a, there's a positive possibility for the parallel uh, approach, but uh, when it supplants, um, you know, sort of the live embodied sort of present uh, lecture, then it becomes a bit different. What are your thoughts? Well, so we, um, Sarah distributed and we looked at a, a survey that uh, the Babson survey group did in 2013 um, about higher education leaders' opinions of MOOCs. And again, this is a few years old, but one of the 
um, phenomena that they suggested with th- was that there was a concern about student attrition, that students tend to sign up for these things and then they sort of fall out and they stop, you know, attending quote unquote attending the lecture, lecture lectures, etc. So I can see how the synchronous nature of a SMOC might help deal with that. Makes sense. Um, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that you can make a sort of argument in favor of, of presence in the classroom and say, you know, oh, something ineffable is lost when you're, the student is not there to watch and, and listen. But those of us who have taught larger courses in the 21st century know that there's probably a very fine line between having a student in the class with a laptop open and being, <laughs> and being physically separated by hundreds of miles. Um, you know, so I, I'm inclined to think that if there's research that shows that students are learning and, and gaining mastery of material and engaged, then that's people being taught and people being taught as a positive value in higher education. Um, but there are other sort of you know, aspects to this. Um, I'm not sure that I have a very strong opinion. I'm not very, you know, pro MOOC or anti MOOC. Um, but it is interesting to think about the question of the presence of the student in the context of theater and performance studies, where, you know, at least speaking for myself, I always build in a, a sort of performed assignment in every class that I teach. And that's meant to be collaborative. And that's meant to show people what it's like to stand up in front of a room and, and perform. Um, it's hard to imagine strictly online courses capturing that benefit of, of education in our field. Well, I, you know, see, and and there, there, that's where I would disagree with you. I mean, <laughs> not not I surprising. Think, so, so for me, the theater and performance studies actually seems an ideal discipline for the MOOC, because what is online teaching other than a kind of acting for the camera, and mm-hmm. and it takes much of what we already think about as good performative pedagogy and puts it into a, a slightly different delivery system. But how many of us have taught a theater class where the vast majority of what we're presenting with students that is not literary or textual is some sort of recorded media, whether that's you know, still images or video or audio. Um, and certainly I've, in preparing syllabi, have made choices about what I'm going to teach based on what materials there are available to students. And I, I, a number of years ago, I wrote, and I still teach this, this essay, Theater History in the Age of Media, in which I talk about the distortions that a camera makes on a live performance. And so how might we, how do, how do we need to account for the distorting influence of the camera and the projection when we're looking at a recorded piece of, of live art? Uh, and what is and what and what we see in the in the recorded version and and, and I'll tell you right now I'm preparing a, a what will be not a MOOC or a a, a massive by any size but a, a you know an intro survey course um, in performance for next fall and I want to include an element of performance uh, in this but depending on how many students enroll in this class you know there's only so much time that we have to view these projects and so one of the things that I'm thinking of doing is having students make a performance work and record it uh, and then upload that to uh, you know to an online discussion board so that we can all see the performance that they made Um, I would also say that I get uh, you know even in a in the context of a small liberal arts college I would say about a third of my interactions with students are 
through through different messaging systems as opposed to in person. You know, and sure. I say this is someone who like eats lunch with students and hangs out with them and has them in my office fairly frequently. But you know, the, many of my students and certainly my my teenage kids, right? A big part of their social interaction is digital. So I I yeah. see that you know because all of these media lend themselves to different kinds of performative interactions. It seems to me that theater and and performance studies becomes. Uh, really an ideal discipline in which to engage this as one of our many pedagogical tools. And I'm, I would never argue for a displacing or a removal or a, you know, we all go to MOOCs and there are no people in, in front of classrooms anymore and we don't ever work <laughs> with students individually. But I think that, that certainly the, some of the questions that, that Charlotte Canning raises in the context of this class at UT Austin as well as just looking at how our students uh, connect with each other and faculty and material digitally already, uh, I think there's a way of, of making uh, better and more deliberate use of, of all of these digital systems. My sense of, and I, I don't disagree, and in thinking about conversations I've had with friends who, who have taught uh, or, or teach these sort of large number of user classes, it, it, it's, it seems to me that uh, the number of people who are actually enrolled or registered for a class uh, online uh, determines what the quality is like, right? You know, so, you know, there's a way in which we all have that level of interface in terms of, you know, of texting students and, um, you know, consulting with them, you know, through technology. But what happens when the number of students in a class sort of explodes from, you know, 100 to 300 to 1,000, right? And, and, and that's the point in which you begin to lose the ability to uh, sort of meaningfully um, uh, sort of mentor individually or even sort of within small groups with students. So it seems to me that, um, you know, like once we can figure that part out, right, where it's not just content being um, directed to students to be absorbed, you know, and then students, you know, generating content that then kind of overwhelms, you know, a, a single instructor or, or a small team of instructors, but trying to find that right balance in terms of like how, like what is the, what is the ratio of instructor to student uh, that allows for uh, an engaged sort of uh, mentoring experience through technology. And I think that's something that people are still trying to square. I think you're right. Uh, which is why I think this, I think this is why the uh, synchronous teaching model can be helpful because that serves as a control in terms of the number of, of, of bodies in the room where users, you know, enrolled in these classes. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's different. And, and I, and, and one last thing I, you know, I virtually attended a few classes, uh, through uh, one of Yale systems. Cause I was just like, Oh, it's like, I was like, I had a sense of nostalgia for the alma mater. And, and it was such a different experience, <laughs> you know, that I, I much like most people kind of abandoned, abandoned the course because it was different than I imagined it might be. But that was also because I was comparing, uh, one's memory of being live, present for a lecture, and the discussion that ensued uh, with the experience of virtual witnesses. So let me uh, jump back in here because I I think I find a space between you two guys, or rather, I think I agree and disagree with you guys both. <laughs> let me see if I can explain how. I think it's absolutely true that there's nothing necessarily precious about the in-person classroom environment in terms of student focus, in terms of mentorship. I think those things can be um, uh, modeled and, and accomplished through online formats. I think, uh, ironically, teachers who are working 
purely online with students are under more pressure to pay attention to them and mentor them directly because they're worried that something is being lost in the mediated um, space of the instruction. But I, I do disagree with you, Sarah, on the idea that there's and, and, and I don't want to ascribe to you a position you're not taking, but. I think oh, no, that that's fun. I, I think okay. Drama is well, well whereas what I hear you're saying is that in our field, there's actually unique reasons to embrace MOOCs because we, in our field, um, look at the the sort of uh, dynamics of mediatization and technology vis-a-vis performance, and that performance is definitely not something that you separate from technology. That um, they're they're blended on the one hand. On the other hand, I do feel like one of the unique facets of a theater performance education at the undergraduate level is collaboration in person on something that happens in time and space. And that part of the reason why students continue to major in theater and take these classes and work on productions is that the memories you have as a student of the shows you worked on, on the performance events you constructed, operating a spotlight, creating a giant you know, Godzilla head out of felt and and chicken wire, which are just two of my memories from my undergraduate theater education, that these things actually do require in-person contact and work with a variety of materials, not excluding, you know, what we would call digitized or, or mediatized materials, but also including other things. So that while there might be a place for the MOOC or the online class in a comprehensive theater and performance education, I think it's a unique field in which a purely online pedagogical model would be practically useless. And I don't think that the same would be said of, say, you know, an undergraduate degree in anthropology or economics. I could imagine a completely online degree in economics, for example, a field that I know nothing about, um, but I couldn't imagine it. <laughs> I couldn't imagine it in theater and performance studies. Yeah, you know, uh, I, I can, and and and, but that's also like where I think I now, uh, you know, am I'm often at odds in in, uh, you know, in the in the whole, in the liveness debate. The one thing I would say is that the very facts, the things that you describe, panel, I don't actually think of as as being uh, exclusive to theater. So, for example, in the film. Right. In, in like, you know, in film departments, students are getting together in person, collaboratively making things, sometimes out of chicken wire and felt. But the the product is one that could be readily shared and aimed at an, at an online audience. Uh, and when you think about, you know, what are the what are the you know, what do you what, is it, what are the outcomes? Like, what do you want theater students to have? What you're describing are, are processes. And those processes, I think, can be facilitated through uh, through online courses and and not, you know. But I do come back to these ways in which I think, you know, our field is changing. Uh, certainly, our our students and our and our audiences, right, uh, within and without the university are changing, and and all of these are now uh, happening in digital contexts. And so I think the notion of online education for theater and performance studies makes makes a lot of sense. Okay, I am very pleased now to welcome Micah Blaker to On Tap. Micah is professor of media and culture studies and chair of theater studies at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Her wide-ranging work examines the intersections of technology and perception in artistic contexts, especially live art and theater. She is the author of Visuality in the Theater, 
published by Palgrave in 2008, and also editor and co-editor of several volumes, including most recently Transmission in Motion, The Technologization of Dance, out from Rutledge in 2016. She's on the editorial board of Theater Survey and has been a visiting scholar at NYU. So we were very happy to have her on the podcast to tell us a little bit about uh, theater and performance studies in Europe. So welcome, Micah. Oh, thank you so much uh, for having me. This is really wonderful. You know, Sarah Bay Jung uh, and Harvey Young could not be here because of scheduling reasons, but I wondered if maybe you could begin just by telling us how the study of theater and performance is situated at Utrecht University. Um, is there a standalone department for theater and performance? Is it housed together with the study of arts, literature, culture? Um, how does it work where you are a professor? Yeah, where I'm a professor, in, uh, it is uh, theater studies um, is part of a department called media and culture studies. And this department um, has a very strong uh, tradition already in kind of interdisciplinary collaborations. And we run several programs. Some of them are focusing on more specific, like only on theater. We have a, a, a master program in contemporary theater, dance, and dramaturgy. But there are also many programs that are um, bringing together different media. Um, we have our media, arts, and performance uh, master's program. We have bachelor programs in media and culture studies, of which theater studies then uh, is a part. Um, so yeah, there is, um, there is a group of people that focuses very much on theater performance dance in their work. Um, but in our teaching programs, uh, we collaborate a lot and there is a lot of opportunity for students to go through programs in different ways, focusing more specifically on one subject separately or very much on intersections between subjects. And this is this is not like standard, um, a standard European procedure, but not even standard structure in in the Netherlands, where I where I studied in Amsterdam, theater uh, studies was much more uh, uh, separate from other uh, fields. So there you would do a bachelor in theater studies and a master in theater studies. Um, and, and the group of people uh, operates more independently from, from other subjects. So this is already within the Netherlands, a, a kind of, a, a, yeah, different structures. Um, in organizational structures. And these are the two universities in the Netherlands that offer really programs in theater studies. There is a little bit of theater also in Groningen, but um, that's more a yeah, smaller part of, of, of a very broad um, uh, cultural studies program. So we spoke a couple of episodes ago with Jennifer Parker Starbuck about the situation in the UK. She explained that there, the practical study of theater and performance was very much walled off from the scholarly study. Is there a similar kind of separation in, in education in the Netherlands? Are your undergraduate students or MA students foreseeing a career in art making? Well, it, it is it is quite similar, I think. Um, in the, the Netherlands has a tradition of a separation between what we would call universities and art academies. And art academies would be the place where you uh, go to become an actor or a director or a designer. But the thing is that for to become a dramaturg, you would go to the university. 
so 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 there is a very close connection to practice but not through acting or directing so much but uh through dramaturgy and then our uh, the a lot of our students also uh, go work in the field uh, as curators quite quite some of our program um students from our program end up as curators of festivals um or curators uh, programmers of theaters and there's critics um educational program collaborators so so a lot of our students do end up in the field they're not all it's only a small part of them would really become like scholarly researchers uh, that would be we have a distinction between one year and two year master programs and the one year master programs are the students who will go work in the field the two year master programs are uh, geared toward phd research and this is a much smaller group um, so there is a distinction, uh, but there is also a strong collaboration between programs from universities and from art schools. And there is also a possibility for students to make the transition from uh, a BA in, in, in art practice to an MA at the university. So that, that requires a little bit of a transitional program, but it is possible. And in Utrecht, we have quite a lot of students from dance and more and more also from design. I, I wonder also about the relationship or the distinction between the study of literature and the study of performance as its own type of object. There's a kind of genealogy in the United States. It's not uniform, but in many places where there are standalone theater departments, the the study and the and the performance of theater was formerly done in English language departments. Um, but in the past, I don't know, half century, increasingly theater is done in separate departments. Is there a similar evolution or a, a sort of different way of contrasting the study of performance as such from the study of literature in uh, the Netherlands or broader? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't be able to speak for, for Europe because I do think there are big differences in the European context. Um, if, for example, if we look at the UK with such a strong tradition in text-based theater, and of course with Shakespeare, um, th this connection is very strong. Whereas the Netherlands traditionally doesn't have a very strong text-based tradition. There is there is a lot of uh, uh, plays being staged, but there is also al already a quite a, a long tradition of um, different types of approaches to theater. Um, the department in Utrecht, I think, is very typical, is in a media department. So it's not, uh, it, it's, it's not the arts and it's not, uh, it's not literature. Amsterdam is closer uh, to arts. I think there the, the bigger organizational unit would be the arts. Um, and yeah, I think that's not a surprise given the, situ the fact that the Netherlands and Flanders and, uh, and Germany are the countries also that are basically the inspiration for the whole idea of Lehmann's post-dramatic theater. They have already for, for decades uh, a tradition of very strong director theater and, and of devised theater of very interdisciplinary approaches. And for a long time, that would also ha has also been uh, uh, already very prominent also in the bigger theaters in the Netherlands. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think one of our, our international colleagues once was shocked that our students were surprised by his assumption that everybody needs to know Shakespeare and our students were like, why uh, and that in a theater? <laughs> so um, I think that says a little bit. That tells a little bit about a, a very different approach to uh, to theater that maybe is closer to what internationally is called performance studies. 
you know, in the same episode in which we talked to Jennifer Parker Starbuck, we talked about this polemic from the playwright David Hare, who's a an English playwright who was complaining about the, you know, contagion of European directors' theater on the London stage. Um, it would be fascinating to, you know, know more about the origin of that tradition, if, if it's a distinctly post-war phenomenon in Northern Europe, um, to, to recognize performance apart from its literary you know, uh, apparatus, you know, you're, you're reluctant to generalize about the, you know, Europe across the continent, which is totally understandable. I have a little bit of experience in France, uh, seeing the way that, um, theater is done in higher education there. Do you have a sense that in contrast to say Southern Europe, France or Italy or other places that there are broadly different practices in, the student production of work or the relative importance of written drama? Yeah, I, th- I think there are these differences, although it's, of course, tricky to, to, to generalize, as you say. But yes, I, th- I think there are. And I, I do think that um, is related to this much longer tradition in the field also uh, of more experimental work and work that doesn't... Um, centralized the the author of of the written text so much um in the netherlands and in germany this is also connected to to um to systems of of support and also i think in in flanders in each country in a different way but that that has been focusing for a longer time on experimental work uh, over um the continuation of traditions of text-based work and there has been much more space for development of alternative uh, approaches so and that of course then at some point also starts to um to be the basis for for teaching because this is the practice that that students are preparing for and and i was thinking about that polemic actually today when i was um i was wondering i i i was very much fascinated by all your reflections about the polemic and how it has to do perhaps with Brexit and 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 a kind of yeah much broader perspective but I also think I was not sure if you are aware that at the moment Ivo van Hove, a Dutch director and one of the most uh, central in, in terms of this director's theater, uh, is staging very, very successful plays with Jude Law in London. So I, I, I can imagine that there is also a very direct threat to this to a, a much more traditional approach to text-based theater at this very moment in London. I wondered if I might ask you about trends that you see. And of course, one can't generalize across continents and one can't predict the future. But theater and performance studies is a dynamic field. People's interests are are always um, uh, going into new directions. Um, And I just wondered if you, during your career or in the present moment, see any kind of important trends or changes taking place in the way theater and performance are studied. Well, well, I I think looking back, when I was was a student, um, performance studies was did not exist or was not referred to uh, in in the context where I was studying in in um, uh, in the Netherlands and in Flanders to a lesser extent with connections to Germany. Um, so it it was just not something that was part of of a frame of reference. Um, but it doesn't mean that we were not doing the things that are that were called performance studies. For, for me, I, I remember reading um, this manifesto by Richard Schechner with quite 
I think from 92, uh, at some point with quite a surprise about theater studies being of the past and performance studies of the future, uh, and that we would all, um, uh, that, 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 yeah, that, that it was so strange that theater studies uh, would not address uh, the Worcester group, for example. Or, and, and that was the year in which we went with all the first years to brace up. Uh, in theater studies, so so it was a kind of reading, a kind of surprise that I realized that um, the the notion of theater studies is then already so culturally diverse because so many things that then were presented as something new f from performance studies have been part of theater studies in the context where I studied for a long time. So what we did see over the past years was that. Um, the notion that the term performance studies is used much more, but that's maybe also because programs become English language and international, and then people start to realize that theater studies has a different kind of frame of reference internationally um, than than what, what it has in the Dutch context or in the German context. Uh, so so then it becomes theater and performance studies. That's something that I've really seen happening. That that everywhere it becomes theater and performance studies. Um, what I do see also well more recently as I think um, a, an interesting kind of more and more automatically mixing of theater performance studies and dance studies where uh, dance studies has also its own history and also of course a history that is different in different places uh, in, in, in the world um, but that in, in this European part of the European context that I'm, I'm very familiar with um, that dance and, and theater and performance started so much to mix in practice and the kind of questions that were addressed in these different practices that dance, it became more and more important to include dance very explicitly. Um, another development that I'm, yeah, that, but that's also perhaps an older development already is this kind of renegotiating of the relationship between performance studies and media studies um, and how they become interesting for each other in different ways. How, how for theater media studies becomes interesting because of the intermedial performances and, um, and, and questions of use of media in performances. But on the other hand, that also for media studies, performance becomes interesting because of how media also in, in all kinds of other places than theater, but starts to change how people perform or become part of performances or where this kind of expanded sense of the dramaturgy of everyday life becomes interesting in relation to questions of what media do. I'm glad you brought that up, the relationship between media studies and, and performance studies. I wonder if uh, there are different relationships between art history departments and art criticism departments and performance studies. Here at my home university, for example, when performance art is studied or written about, it tends to be in the art school. Do you feel as though there's a separate uh, institutional framework um, or scholarly framework for art history that also wants to engage with live art or what we would think of as performance art in gallery spaces? Yeah, I, I do think there is um, th there is a different approach also from from in, in the Netherlands uh, uh, from from yeah scholars approaching performative practices from the art history perspective of art theory perspective. Uh, although there is also this overlap. Um, I, 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 I do think that we, since we have such a long history of um, 
the mixing of these different approaches to theater in a broad field in the Netherlands, where for, where for um, in, especially in, in the uh, in the 80s and the 90s, um, uh, radical work in the theater was so radical um, that it was not like the opposition of theater and then we have performance, but there, in our some of our the, the main stage work was. It was extremely radical. We had these performances uh, by artists like Wimte Schippers, who did works with only dogs on the main stage in in, in Amsterdam, um, and um, uh, Geert Jan Reinders, who uh, was the director of um, the uh, Toneelgroep Amsterdam before Ivo van Hoven, who created extremely radical work, uh, including people masturbating on stage and and, and all kind of radical actions. Um, and so, so that was. So it's hard to say that there's not so much of a, a very strict opposition traditionally. I think we're we, we're now moving back into more opposition of traditional versus radical work. But there is also a generation of makers, or more than one generation of makers already, that works kind of in between all these fields. So I'm. Yeah, I, I do think there is a different approach if you approach these works from an art historical perspective, but there is also a lot of overlap and, and interaction and talking about the same kind of works and artists working sometimes in galleries and sometimes um, in in, uh, in theaters. Well, Micah, thank you so much. This has been really illuminating and really informative. I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it. Um, so thank you once again for for joining us on the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Finally, we are going to share our drafts. These are our ideas in progress, our our half-formed thoughts. Um, uh, Sarah, what is your draft for this episode? My draft is thinking about acting in Get Out. So this is the new film uh, uh, by Peel, uh, I'm Jordan sure Peele. most people know about it. I'm not going to say more about that. Um, but the, the 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 issue that I've been thinking about is the role of of duality and acting, particularly as it pertains to uh, African American film performance. So uh, if you've seen the film, uh, or if you haven't seen the film, the the thing that I'm sort of most interested in is the performances of the African American. Uh, servants on at the at the at the the white home where our protagonist and his uh, white girlfriend go, um, black protagonist white girlfriend go to meet her family, and what we learn about the film and I won't say too much because I think if you haven't seen it you should and you should be surprised. Uh, but one of the things we learn is that there are really in in all of the servants there are two there are two performances happening simultaneously uh, because. Uh, I don't know how to say this without giving the, giving it away, but but basically, you know, the the the, peop, the the people that we see are not fully in control of their uh, of, of their behavior, right? So the the people that we see are actually being controlled um, by another mechanism, and this reminded me very much of the performance of Hattie McDaniel in Gone with the Wind as Mammy. And the argument, right? And she was, of course, the first uh, uh, African American uh, recipient of an Academy Award for that performance. And what's interesting there is is the critical assessment of her work as being uh, simultaneously invoking and performing these racist uh, and stereotypical tropes, and yet creating a performance that, you know, almost Brechtian, uh, also 
enabled a kind of simultaneous critique that was readable. And there was particular attention to the way she used voice as a way of critiquing the performance even as she is doing the performance. And I think there's a, a really interesting, similar and very intentional return to McDaniel's performance in the performance of uh, of the African American servants uh, in in Get Out, so I've been, you know, thinking a lot about about that and how to sort of phrase it and and frame it. So that's what I'm thinking about. Very cool. I still need to see that movie. I feel like I know all the spoilers and everything, but I got to go see it. Oh, it's so good. Uh, it's so good. Harvey, Harvey, what's your draft this time? My draft is centered on graduate acting, and I'm trying to figure out. Uh, and I think I know why, but uh, I'm trying to figure out why is it that there is not a university with a top-notch undergraduate and graduate acting program. Uh, you know that that um, one's reputation tends to center, you know, one or the other, and and often the one that gets the praise uh, tends to uh, result in a uh, lesser valued and in, in some cases a less functional. Uh, program. So that's what I'm trying to figure out. Do so you mean like BFA and MFA or BA MFA? Uh, it could be BA MFA yeah. uh, acting, BFA MFA acting. It doesn't make a difference to me. That's interesting. No, I feel <laughs> like know? those are probably very different arts, actually, of training people at those different phases of their career. I, sus- I suspect that part of the issue might be uh, resources, right? Like sort of who gets priority in terms of um, uh, acting studios. And then some part of it might be marketing, right? You know, that you have to create two different sort of marketing approaches uh, to be able to justify, you know, why a person should major at the undergraduate level in acting. Uh, and then also why another population will want to, um, you know, get a graduate degree in acting without the sense that one is necessarily better than the other. And that's the hard, um, that's the hard challenge that universities have been struggling to uh, meet. Does that have to do, like, just with the the sort of hard limit of how many people you can put on stage in any given year? Maybe I don't know. I don't. I I I I, re- I really don't know. I mean, part, I, I really do think that, like, a really good undergraduate program will say to prospective students that we equip you with the skill, uh, the skill set to be a professional artist, right? You, you know. Four years of training here, you are prepared for the world, for Broadway, regional theater, whatever else. You know, so if that is the argument that you're making, then what is your argument for an MFA acting program? Yeah. Right? Like, do you see what I mean? Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and then for the MFA acting program, you know, if you're saying that, hey, we are above and better than any other undergraduate program, <laughs> right? You know, you know, then what are you saying about the quality of your own undergraduate program, right? So, like, it's... I don't know the answer, but I'm, I'm I've been thinking about it for the last few those months. Those both seem more, like more so. Those recently. both seem like very plausible explanations. Yeah, I yeah. I wish <laughs> I wish that I could uh, join you guys in creating a trifecta of acting related drafts, but mine it's all is about acting. again related to um, the social world. So partly because I've been working on this book about social theory, um, I've been thinking about the social world of our field and actually uh, acknowledgments in books. Um, or you mentioned that I managed to get mentioned in Lisa Freeman's book, which is very gratifying, but I'm sure you guys have thought about this genre of writing as well. The, you know, acknowledgement to the book in which you thank your friends, you thank your mentors, you thank the institutions that have helped you, you invariably thank people who are very close to you in your personal life. Um, And I've wondered about 
if you could do a kind of study of the social world of a field like theater and performance by reading book acknowledgments and identifying, you know, who names who in the acknowledgments to their book and how those people named um, might have, you know, different identities in different parts of academia, because theater and performance studies is this kind of conglomerate of people who work in different ways and who have training in different cognate fields. Um, and there's a, a, a great historian of French drama named Gregory Brown, um, who has written a book on uh, the prefaces that were written at the beginning of published plays in 18th century France. And there he identifies this sort of tradition of self-fashioning. There are, of course, sort of procedures that one goes through as an aspiring playwright to ingratiate oneself to a patron or to a court figure. Um, but there's a sort of re rhetoric of self-fashioning to create the picture of oneself as an homme de lettres, right, as a sort of literary um, man. And I think you could do similar studies of acknowledgments in our field. You know, my book has, I think, a kind of embarrassingly long acknowledgments. Like after a while, I'm like, do I have to, li you know, am I listing everyone that I that I have ever talked to about this book? Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and I think that the genre has morphed over time as well. So I've been wondering what we might be able to discover about our field by doing a systematic study of acknowledgments idea I, I would i would totally read your short paper it would be it an reminds me also like that, that their twitter like thanks for typing right which is this kind of ongoing survey and study of all these men thanking their wives and and other women for typing yeah. their manuscripts yes yes that's a that, right. that is one thanks for typing genre that has died away oh. I, I, I do remember thinking before I, I i published my first book and you know and concerned whether I'd ever publish that book, uh, and imagining never publishing any book, uh, thinking, you know, could I have a life where I was just acknowledged in other people's books? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's value <laughs> like to 50 it. Fifty years from now, could someone say like, who is this Harvey Young who has been acknowledged in so many books but has never managed to write a book himself? Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> so it's like... it's meaningful, um, and, and it should be taken <laughs> yeah. into account. Um, okay, well, thank you guys. And um, listeners, we will be back with more podcasts soon. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.